Uh, so I'd invite you to keep your Bibles open uh, at Luke chapter 10 uh, on page uh, 1042 uh, because uh, I'll be going through that and the passages aren't on the screen uh, as I go through this. Uh, but I wonder, have you ever watched a movie where the ending is so shocking or where the plot twist is so unexpected that you feel that you need to rewatch the whole thing over again after you've seen it? Because you know that as you rewatch it, you know that you're going to see it in a totally different light. And to be honest, the example that's in my mind of this is so nice that it's not worth mentioning. And I have such a poor um, knowledge of uh, movies that I didn't really have an example that all of you would know. So I'm sure you have one in your own mind uh, and you know what I'm saying. Um, you get the picture, you're following along the whole way until something happens and then the story is just seen in a totally different light. And this morning, I suspect that could be the case for many of us as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, see, I haven't done any official surveys or anything on this, uh, but I would imagine that the parable of the Good Samaritan is probably one of the best, uh, one of the most well-known Bible stories um, in, just in the general public even. Um, I mean, with no reliability here, I think it's fourth. Um, this is just straight off the top of my head. Um, so I think it goes birth of Jesus, death and resurrection of Jesus, Noah's Ark, Good Samaritan. Seem fair? Yeah. Some questionable nods, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I'm basically just working my way through this list as I'm preaching because last time I was on Noah's Ark. Um, but so regardless if you agree with that list or not, I'm sure we can all agree that it's at least the best known parable, isn't it? And I think, however, people only really know from about verse 30 onwards. They know that this man is going down a street and he's attacked by robbers and that a priest and a Levite, they pass him by, they take no notice of him, and yet that it is a Samaritan of all people who stops and takes care of him, that he is this neighbor that shows love. And so what's the big idea of that shortened version? That this is basically the essentials of Christianity that this is what it's all about. It's all about showing love and taking care of people, even your enemies. And actually, that's a message that pretty much everyone can get on board with. And that's probably why that's such a popular story. But I want to show you, hopefully graciously, that that's not exactly the whole story of this passage. And in fact, I don't even think it's really the main idea of it. It's certainly there. It's certainly important. But as we walk through the structure of the whole section from verse 25 right through to verse 37, I think we'll get some clues that this story isn't pointing to maybe what we had in mind. And one of the keys to seeing that is the immediate context of verses 25 to 28. And this is the bit that people aren't so familiar with. But as Don Carson frequently says, any text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Catchy, isn't it? <laughs> Um, but we're not going to be flicking all over the Bible, don't worry. Um, but we are going to pay attention to the context which Jesus tells this parable in, particularly looking at those first couple of verses which people aren't so familiar with. And so as we look at this passage, what I want you to see is the back and forth of this. It's not told in isolation. Here's the structure. Verse 25, this expert in the law, he asked Jesus a question, and to which Jesus replies then with his own question to that. So you have a question followed by a question. And then in verse 27, the lawyer answers his own question, really, and Jesus says, yep, that's a good answer. The lawyer, he then asks another question in verse 28, or verse 29, sorry, and it's to this question that Jesus answers by telling a story or a parable. 
And this story is designed not just to answer the question, but to help the lawyer understand something about his own heart. And that's so important here. If you miss that, I think you might miss the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And finally, at the end of the story in verse 36, Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these people obeyed the command to love his neighbor? And again, the lawyer answers Jesus correctly, the one who showed mercy. So as we walk through this, be on the lookout for a few things because I would quite like you guys to see the answers before I even say them. Uh, so have a think about where does Jesus point to, point the lawyer to for the answer to his first question? Where does he point the lawyer to for the answer to his first question? And you'll see that one in verse 26. Then I want you to have a look out for Jesus' response to the man answering correctly. You'll see that in verse 28. What does Jesus say when the man answers correctly? And then finally, look for the parallel of Jesus' answer. So you're looking at that answer he gives in 28, and then look at what he says in the second half of verse 37, because I think there's a parallel between his answers, and they're really key to understanding this. See, I want to suggest that while the lawyer's answers are correct, Jesus says, yep, they are good answers, his answers also present a problem. And where I want to go with this is that there is a solution that this uh, problem points to. So look with me at verse 25. We'll get stuck into this. A lawyer or an expert in the law, depending on the translation, he comes up to Jesus and he asks a question. But first look at the motivation for this question. Look at what he says. He's not asking this in good faith. He's asking it to put Jesus to the test. And about what? What is he putting him to the test for? Well, he asks, he asks him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now the reason the lawyer asked this question is because the Jews were suspicious that Jesus had a pretty low view of the law. They believed that the moral scales would be weighed at the end, and yet Jesus has been talk talking about entering the kingdom of God now. And he's been talking about being born again. He's been talking about lots of these things. And so he asked the question, trying to get Jesus to say something that, show that shows that he doesn't really have that high a view of the law. He's sort of expecting Jesus to say, just accept me as your personal savior. You don't have to obey the law or anything. Just accept me as your savior and you're in. And we even see that in the motive of, uh, we even see that motive in the wording of this lawyer's question. Have a look there. It's a, it's a slightly strange thing to ask, isn't it? To say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Because if you think about it, we don't do anything to inherit something, do we? You simply belong to the right family and they have passed it on to you. You don't do anything to earn it. And so Jesus then, knowing his motives and knowing that there's something pretty fundamentally wrong with the question, he asks the question back to the lawyer. And look at where he points to as the source for that answer. Verse 26, he says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Jesus is saying, go to the Bible, read it, and what do, you what do you find in answer to your question? What do you find in the Bible? What does it say that you must do to inherit eternal life? And the lawyer, he replies and he says, okay, well, let me sum it up. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus' response to that is, bingo, you've hit the nail on the head. Now, if you've been about church for a while, that might surprise you a little bit. Because most of us are expecting some kind of spiel on justification by faith alone, that we just need to put our trust in Jesus, that it's all about receiving his grace. And yet, that's not what he says here, is it? The lawyer asks, what must I do? 
And the answer that Jesus says is correct is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. What you need to do to inherit eternal life is love God and love your neighbor. And in verse 28, he not only tells the lawyer his answer is correct, he says, do this and you will live. And I think this is one of the keys to understanding the purpose of this passage. See, Jesus is saying, you've told me the requirements, you've already told me them, and you're absolutely right. But go ahead. Go ahead. It's a, it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek answer, really. Like, if you don't have any sin, yeah, you'll live. If you can uphold the law, fire away, and you'll inherit eternal life. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing him that he has a higher view of the law than this expert in the law has himself. He's saying, read the law, and what does it say? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Same thing that happens after the parable in verse 37. Jesus basically says, yep, go for it. Because here's a standard for what you would have to do to meet God's requirements. Love God not just a little, but with all your heart, all your soul, mind, and strength. And don't just love others as a secondary priority. Love your neighbor as you'd love yourself. And now that should sort of ping off some alarm bells in our heads and we may be thinking, well, well, we have a little bit of a problem here, don't we? Because we can't even uphold that law on our best days. Maybe we love him with some of our mind. Maybe we're more intentional about loving him with a bit more of our strength on a Sunday. But all of my mind, all my heart and soul and strength, well, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not even convinced that I fulfill that on my best days. Never mind all of the time. And now there's a similar story to this one in Luke chapter 18 about a rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he asks the same question as the lawyer does here. He comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as the requirements of the law are set out before him, just as they were here, the rich young ruler says, great, I've done this and this and this and this. I've loved God and in fact, I've loved him since I was a kid. I've loved God and I've loved my neighbor. Tick, 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 tick. And Jesus says, hmm, okay, well, let's try this. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And now, is Jesus saying that if we want to be a Christian, we have to get rid of all of our material possessions? No, of course not. But then why does he ask the rich young ruler to do this? Well, because this man has just told Jesus that he has kept all of the commands. And now Jesus is saying, okay, let's give the first one a go. Let's see if you love God more than anything else. And we quickly realize that he loves his money more than God. We have very similar echoes in this story. And what Jesus is doing in both in his love is he's highlighting where their sin is. See, before anyone comes to Jesus, Jesus turns the heat up a little bit just so that we recognize our sin. That's what he's doing here. And now the difference between that story and our passage today is that Jesus went after the first command with the rich young ruler, and then here today with the lawyer, it's, it's with the second command. He's saying, love your neighbor as yourself. What he's doing is ringing their alarms and saying, look, 
you fall short just like everybody else. You want to know what God requires? It's this, perfectly uphold the law. You see, this system that the lawyer is trying to defend is a system that cannot save anyone. And as he comes here seeking to condemn Jesus, he's condemned himself by this system and the whole world. See, his answers are correct, but they present a problem, don't they? And what should have followed was something like this. Okay, suppose a a friend of mine didn't perfectly keep those commands. Suppose one of my friends did that. Say he might have had some sin in his life. Well then, how would he inherit eternal life? Because that's more like the question that all of us have, don't we? That's the question that we're left whenever we look at these commands and see how we followed them. If we stand in the lawyer's shoes, look at what God requires and look at how we've done, we should simply break down in hopeless despair saying, I cannot justify myself. I have nothing to the table to bring. And yet what does the lawyer do in verse 29? Have a look with me. He tries to justify himself, doesn't he? And now before we move on, I want to pause for a moment as we ask ourselves some points of application here. Jesus, in his love, he's showing this man his sin. He's showing them that this system that he's trying to uphold is one which can't save anyone. It only condemns. And so we should pause too and ask to see if we can see this sin in our lives. If we're heeding this warning that Jesus is giving us in his word. See, despite this generation ushering in the cancel culture, we're also a generation which have made most things pretty fluid and pretty relative. We've got rid of objective reality. And it makes it all the more easy to justify ourselves instead of humbly admitting our shortcomings. We've brought back these scales that the Jewish people were standing by, where we just hope that at the end the good will outweigh the bad. Because in that case, we don't really need to worry about falling short, do we? We don't really need to repent. We can just work at being a little bit better next week. Or maybe we bring our own version of right and wrong, or even how right and how wrong. This idea that as long as you're not a really bad person, you'll be okay. Or maybe we justify ourselves by comparing to others, like saying, some people can just be so selfish. And we forget about just how much we look out for ourselves. Or we say how much we try to be a good person, but other people make it very difficult and someone has to look out for me. See, there are two responses in the face of our own sin. There's the pride of justifying ourselves or else there's this beautiful and freeing humility of repentance. Do you remember the words of our last hymn that we sung? Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. He offers forgiveness for those who see that they need it. And so we're free to admit that sin. We're free to admit that we cannot uphold this law. Now, as the lawyer tries to justify himself, what he does is try to narrow the scope of that command. So we're back to the passage again. And what he does next is he asks this question, who is my neighbor? Because he's trying to narrow the scope of it. And it's an answer to this question that Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I think we've seen already uh, that the point of this isn't to say that doctrine doesn't matter and that evangelism doesn't matter and conversions don't matter. And all we really ought to do is go out and invest our time and our resources in social concern. I'm not saying that by any means the Bible isn't concerned about that. It absolutely is. 
But in terms of the purpose of this passage, why Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan is to show the lawyer the sin of his own heart. It's to show that image of our children's address and apologies to those who were on this side and couldn't say a thing that was happening, but it's to show that image that we fall short. What Jesus is doing in this parable is hashing out the extent of that command to love your neighbor. And so we read in verse 30 that in, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And so there's the backdrop to it. There's a man who's in desperate need of help after being attacked by robbers. And what we see next is the response of three different people, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Now, to this Jewish expert in the law, there are some likely heroes in this movie, aren't there? But what he's about to find out at the end is a plot twist which is so significant, it'll make him feel like he needs to go back to the start, back to his first question and think about it all over again, which I think is exactly Jesus' point. So we get the first two religious professionals in verses 31 and 32, the priest and the Levite, and what do they do when they see the man? Have a look at verses 31 and 32. They pass by on the other side, don't they? They turn the other way, they put their head down, and they walk on. And probably the reason that they do that is because it's actually a really dangerous place that this happens. And that's evidenced in itself by the robbers being there and by the man who's left half dead. And yet who stops in verse 33 and puts their life at risk to save him? It's a Samaritan. And what does he do for the man? Because this passage is just filled with verb after verb after verb. In verse 33, he takes pity on the man. Verse 34, he bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He puts him on his donkey, brings him to an inn, takes care of him. And not only that, verse 35, he pays for what I've been informed would be about two months' rent for this man. With those two silver coins, he'd pay for about two months' rent. And now, if you try to pay anyone's rent for two months, you'll know the sacrificial love that this man has shown. And the heart that he must have to go one step further and say, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Now, this is amazing by itself. Like if anyone was to do this, it would be amazing. But what we need to remember is that not only is this Samaritan risking his life, dropping his schedule, getting dirty, displaying the most concrete and costly kind of help, he's also doing it for a sworn enemy. Jews and Samaritans, they were huge enemies. They wouldn't take anything to do with each other. And in fact, in John 8, when they got so mad at Jesus, what was the insult that they threw at him? They called him a Samaritan. Jews had nothing to do with them. They were sworn enemies. And so we have a known enemy here who's displaying one of the most costly examples of love. And now, why on earth would Jesus choose to share such an extreme example here? Well, I think the answer is twofold. First, to show this expert in the law that he hasn't actually met the requirements of the law at all, that he falls short. And we've already considered that part at length. But he also does it to show that when the grace of God touches your heart, it will inevitably spur you on to do acts of compassion and do them for the neediest, 
most broken and even the most ungrateful and furthest person away from you, demographically, socially, in every way. And I've seen some really, really powerful examples of that this week. Examples which have genuinely brought me to tears in gratitude for what God is doing through his people. Displays of love and some of the most kindest words which have been spoken into really broken situations because such is the grace of God. When that grace touches your heart, it will transform. As Jesus rounds up the story, he asks in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law, he replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The only way that we can be spurred on to do this with the right motivations is to see the one who first showed mercy. To see that there is one man who fulfilled the law completely, who did follow the commands and yet did not just live but died in our place. One who hears our helpless cries, one who hears our plea, the one who showed mercy. We were by nature enemies with God through our sin, and yet Jesus in his love has offered salvation in his mercy. This is the grace of God which can transform hearts. We love because he first loved us. And as we close, let me leave you with just a few questions to ask yourself by way of application. Number one, why do I do what I do? Think about all the good things you do and ask yourself, why do you do those things? Is it out of love for God and out of love for others? Or maybe is it from a desire to justify yourself, to try to somehow earn your salvation? Because I want to encourage you to abandon that effort and to trust in Christ alone. And then to follow him as a disciple out of love and gratitude for what he's done. Let that be your motive. And secondly then, ask yourself, where do I see people in need? Think about your circle of friends, your neighbors, your acquaintances, the needs that you're already aware of. And think about those needy and those vulnerable groups that we have in our society. The poor and the homeless. How can we help them? Immigrants and refugees, many who fled from some of the most terrible situations. Can we come alongside them and welcome them into a community? Can we help them settle in or can we help them learn English? What can we do to help these people? And what about children? Can we show those with difficult family backgrounds what it's like to have a really positive influence and what it's like to have a loving influence on them? Someone who shows them this unconditional love and support. Maybe some of you already foster or adopt kids without families or maybe that's something that you'd consider as an outworking of this love for your neighbor there are just an endless number of ways that we can use our time and our money to show love like this. And if you sit down and think about it, you'll think of endless, uh, endless numbers of ways to do that, a lot more than I've just outlined there. And this is the life that God has called us into, with the strength and the gifting of his spirit indwelling on us. He'll spur us on in these acts of love, because there is one who definitively shows mercy. And Jesus calls us to let us go and do likewise. Let's pray.
God, we thank you so much that while we have not met the requirements of the law, that we very much fall short, you have shown us mercy in your son, Jesus. Would we put our trust in his perfect record and trust that his sacrifice was sufficient for us? And Holy Spirit, would you equip, equip and spur us on in these acts of love for our neighbor? As radical or as simple as they may be, give us a love for these people that moves us into action. And it's in Jesus' saving name that we pray. Amen.